This year is shaping up to be historic for Black Rifle Coffee Company. If you haven't been to the website in a while, be sure to check it out and see what you're missing. Black Rifle is dedicated to bringing you the best premium coffees from around the world and the highest quality apparel tailor made for the veteran community. This year will be packed with collaborations with other veteran brands and artists through the Shirt Club. So check it out if you want to support veteran businesses and get some killer shirts. Your support makes it possible for BRCC to keep broadening its mission to support veterans through quality coffee and culture. So download the BRCC app now so you never miss a thing. You know, you you have a profound journey, and we haven't talked about that really in depth. Let's talk a little bit about that. Are we going back to 2020? Or, or, or pre- previous to that, the whole journey. We should go, but we, I think we should go back um, at, at a minimum to Ranger Battalion because that's where it started for you, right? Yeah. You know, I was, I grew up outside of Seattle, Washington in a small farm town called Snohomish. And like a lot of kids in Snohomish, I was into drinking and fighting and just being wild. Yeah. And this was the late 90s. It was, uh, it was still pretty normal, I think, for young boys to behave like that. And like, we didn't get in trouble or get arrested. That was just life. Friday, Saturday night, you'd go find a party in a cornfield with a keg and get drunk and fight each other. Yeah. And it was like, man, this is all coming to an end and all my friends are going to college. And all I knew is that I fucking hated school. Mm. You know, I was like, why do I want to continue to go down that path? And uh, this was 1999, so it was pre-GWAT. And I was like, you know what? I just want to go do something really hard. Mm. And I didn't know, you know, people talk about all the time. It's like, did you have some calling to be a patriot and serve your country not really Mm. i was just like i'm a lost kid so why not go do something hard until i figure out who i am and for reasons that i still don't really understand to this day is like let's be a navy seal or an army ranger Mm. it just came to me because i mean as far as the special operations community goes those are the two most well-known names Mm. you know so i went to the seal recruiter and he was super pushy and kind of a D-bag. And then I walked, you know how like recruiting officers are always co-located yeah, together, next right? Yeah. I walked right across to the army and was like, let's see what this guy's like. And he had a ranger tab. And he was cool as fuck. That's rare. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. And I was like, man, the, the Navy guy seemed like a, a fucking dork. But this army guy is awesome. He's cool. <laughs> let's make a career decision based on interactions with one man. Because that's what you do when you're 17. You do. You, yeah, you know? absolutely. And I was like, oh, I don't want to be like this guy. I want to be like this guy. Mm-hmm. Signed up with the army. Got. Uh, I was in the delayed entry program. And then right after graduating, went into the army. And, uh, you know, I did the whole, I didn't actually get option 40 in my contract. Mm-hmm. My recruiter told me, he goes, if you go through infantry and then airborne school you'll be able to volunteer for rip down at benning and it worked out perfectly really knowing what i know now i would have never done that because needs of the regiment fluctuate that wait a minute that's a thing i thought that was the lie they told you bro i was in airborne graduation formation and this dude from regiment pulls up just like they said they would shut up his name was sergeant rackus and uh he since passed but uh he goes who here wants to be part of the regiment? Raise your hand. And there was, I don't even remember, you know, 12 guys or something. He's like, fall out, throw your sea bags in the back of this pickup truck, form a formation off to the side. They said regiment has the ability to cut orders because I was going to 82nd. Oh, wow. But but regiment has the, the ability to cut Change orders. Change your stuff, yeah. You know? And they said, all right, platoon formation. 
right face, forward march, and bro took us on a death run on the spot back to the Rip Barracks. Really? And come to find out, that I guess they used to send Sergeant Rackus because he was one of the fastest guys. Yeah. That was the plan. Make everybody fall out. You yeah. Know? Whoever made it to the barracks, yeah. you get day one. <laughs> right out of the gates, you're like feeling like a shitbag. Like, that was the hardest run of my life. What What is this going to be, you know? Wow. And, uh, yeah, did rip and uh, did well. Got put in uh, 2nd Battalion up mm-hmm. at Fort Lewis, Washington. And did, was that by design to go back home or did that just kind of so, work out? So, you know, the, another thing that, that worked out for me at the graduation of RIP, they said, hey, here's uh, here's like your request list. What what battalion do you want to go to? And I've heard that some classes, they will send everybody to the battalions they didn't want to go to. Mm-hmm. And then other times they'll work with guys. And uh, I wanted first or second. I well, I didn't want to stay at Benning as I don't think anybody wants to stay at Benning, you know. And uh, I got stationed in Second Battalion, went to Ranger School, then nine eleven, and you know what happened after that, you know. And it was just we. I got two rotations to Afghanistan with Second Battalion, and then it was I was looking at ETSing or reenlisting, and then that's when contracting was blowing up. Mm. And uh, what was that decision for you? Like, what was there a a moment where you're just like, man, this contracting thing's you know, because you were E five in the regiment, E five, yep. yeah. And they were telling me if I reenlist that I'll get E six, mm-hmm. and I was like, I don't know, man. I always really liked the Ranger Regiment. I enjoy, like, I look back on that time and I reflect with pride. And I was surrounded by good dudes and we were doing cool stuff. But at the same time, I always knew that wasn't a place I wanted to make a career out of. Mm. You weren't going to be a lifer. In the no, regiment. man. Yeah. And it was, uh, you know, you always remember all the good shit. You don't remember all the bullshit. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of bullshit. It's you know? pre 9-11. There was a ton of it. Yeah. Right? Garrison. And so I made the decision. I was like, you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna get out and I'm going to pursue some other things. And then the contracting world came to light. And it was like, dude, we could go back. We could go redeploy and make 25K a month. Doing cool stuff. Doing cool stuff. Yeah. And I tell people all the time, man, I got more... I got more shit as a contractor than I ever got in as a ranger. Mm. And that's just, I mean, that's just the roll of the dice. You yeah, know? yeah. I was actually very bummed out because a lot of my ranger buddies, guys I went through RIP with, guys I went through ranger school with, I mean, uh, one of my buddies was a, a 240 gunner on Roberts Ridge and just fucking stacking bodies, you know? His name was Randy Pazder. I went through ranger school with him. And, like, you, you see all these guys that you know out doing fucking cool shit, and then... And, and I did too, man. Like, we, we did six months in the safe house in BK, Barry Cout, and a lot of cool stuff culturally, but not very intense combat operations. Like, mm-hmm. maybe IED here or there. And we'd do hits, but it was always a dry hole and that kind of stuff. And I started being like, man, what the fuck are we doing? Yeah. Like, I'm supposed to be killing bad guys, and I'm not. Yeah. But uh, again, like, that, that's outside of your control. You just kind of have to. It's a roll of the dice. Take it's, it as it comes. Yeah, it's a gamble. You know? But the other side of the coin is not being in lots of combat operations. We all came home too. Yeah. You know, and you don't think about that when you're 22. You're like, I just want to fucking kill people. Yeah. But uh, it, it got so, it, it almost became like, in my mind, I thought deployments were just like, ah, this will never happen. Ah, this will never happen. Mm. Because it's like, you can only go on so many patrols and not get shot at or not get blown up. And you're like, fuck, you know, this is, it's chill here. And then, I took a position with Triple Canopy as a contractor and I got sent to Ramadi. And this was April of 04. 
and uh the height the of, height dude yeah and uh my not not my shift leader the project manager the guy that was in charge of the whole thing his name was kurt utz and he was an awesome guy and he goes just so we're you're very clear this isn't if it's when here like we get hit all the time and it was kind of like oh okay Oh wow! This is this is a little different. This is what I was looking yeah. for, and bro, the, those few deployments to Ramadi over the course of the next year was like getting ambushed all the time. Wow! And so we would basically the whole the whole mission. It was just like rinse and repeat. Our uh, he ended up becoming the ambassador. His name was Keith Kidd, but at the time he was tasked to be in charge of Am- Ambar Province. Mm. So we'd go down to the government center every single day, and he'd work with the local government. Just, I mean, you know how it was. We tried to th- we tried to put a democracy in place under like Western ideology. We're like, hey, this is what a mayor looks like, and yeah. then you're going to have a governor of each province overnight. Yeah, you know, and this is how an election works. And so we were there all day, every day, trying to emplace a Western system of government. And Al Qaeda Iraq was like, that's exactly what they stood against. Mm-hmm. And so they had a bounty on his head. And he was the, he worked for the state department. Yes. Yep. And you guys were his protective detail. Exactly. Got it. Yep. And, but bro, he was cool, man. Like he showed up to the team and, uh, he got there about the same time I got there. Cause they had a different, they had a different, uh, diplomat. They were protecting that changed out because it was too fucking dangerous. He's like, this is not for me. Mm. So I got there at the same time as the new principal. And he, we were all sitting around. We had this bonfire where we'd have our team meetings and he goes, guys, listen, I'm little, I'm skinny, I'm I'm weak, I'm a lawyer. Like, your job is to keep me alive, and I understand that, and you guys are the experts. So I will literally do anything that you say. If I'm in the middle of a meeting and you say, meeting's fucking canceled, we're leaving. Like, I will, I will not give you any pushback, I wanna stay alive. And for, for someone like you that's worked in the security world, that's huge, man. Huge. Because a lot of principals think because they're the details there for them that they get to dictate operationally. Yeah, the priorities change. It's like security's always the number one priority. Yeah, dude. Yeah. And so, but he was cool on the other side too because we would be, uh, and his call sign was the Godfather. Man, every time we'd go down to the government center and there was a, a Marine platoon from either 2-4 or 2-5 that was also tasked with site security. Mm-hmm. Those kids were fucking killing people all day, bro. Wow. Like, dudes would be taking pop shots. Dudes would be, ta- like, the, the compound would be getting mortared, RPG'd. When our car, when our vehicles were there, the compound was getting attacked. Wow. And so he was like, uh, you know, the, the AIC would get on the radio and say, hey, the Godfather is about wrapped up with his meeting, but we can hear all the action. He said, if you guys want a couple more hours, he can extend it and, and we can talk about some more stuff. Like, he was down with letting us do the thing because for him, you know how it was. A lot of guys, they never lived like that hard lifestyle and they kind of got to touch it through that. Yeah. And for some of them, yeah. it was fucking cool. Yeah. You know? They swam instead of sinking. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and and then he ended up becoming the, the ambassador years later. Up to Iraq. Yeah. Oh, really cool. And so... But yeah, I did that for, I ended up contracting for the next, until 2009, five years. Dang. People were asking, they're like, dude, how long are you going to do this for? I was like, forever. Because it was awesome. You're like, getting paid. Dude, I get paid a lot of money. Mm. I'm surrounded by cool people. I'm working out all the time. Like, I was maybe the fittest of my life. You know how it was. Like, yeah. you do one. Two hours a day exactly, working you out. You do one or two runs a day. 
and then you'd you'd go to the the chow hall and get ten chicken breasts and ten <laughs> eggs, and like then go Just hit the jacked. gym and get jacked. Like it was it was awesome. But then, like most of us do, I ended up meeting a girl. We got married, and I was actually deployed on a contract when Jenny sent me a, a message via Yahoo Messenger of a positive pregnancy test. And it was an accident. You're like, wow, that's weird. I wasn't even back home. <laughs> yeah, exa- yeah, exactly. Wait a minute. <laughs> I've been gone for six months. <laughs> you know, what ended up happening is we, uh, I flew home in between deployments, and we got married, and we did our honeymoon in uh, Australia. And we went and dove the Great Barrier Reef. Oh, God, Bro, that's it was awesome. rad. Contractor life. Contractor life, exactly. <laughs> like so I was actually on deployment, and we were talking, and Jenny said, I want to I wanna go to the Great Barrier Reef for my honeymoon. And I was like, yeah, I bet you do. And I said, well, and I was already an advanced open water diver. So I said, here's the deal. I'm not going to Australia unless it's a, a vacation based around diving. And, and you don't have your diving cert. So if you want to do that, I need you to get certified. Dear Patty. Bro, she went and hammered that out in like a week. Like, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember she didn't say shit. I just got an email of her Patty certificate. Wow. Looks like we're going to Australia. That's rad. Right? Yeah. And you know Jenny. She's, she's fucking, awesome, She's cool, man. man. She's, she's a, a go-getter. And uh, so, yeah, we fucking, we did that. And then on the 14-hour flight home, Jenny got super sick. Just because you know how, like, that recirculating air in cabins oh, yeah, over yeah. long flights. Yeah. And so she got, I think she took a pack or something. And we didn't know it at the time, but antibiotics, for, for listeners out there, this is a pro tip. Yeah. Antibiotics shut down birth control. That's a side. That's a side effect that we didn't know. Wow! And so there we were, you know, a month later, and and that was, I mean, right after the honeymoon. So yeah. we'd only been married a month, and she was pregnant. Wow! And so she's like, I don't think I can do this with you gone six to nine months a year. And bro, that's a reasonable thing for a woman, of course. And bro, you know how it was. Like so many guys on the teams with women and children back home, it fucked with them, man. It was like an additional sense of stress. Yeah. How many of your teammates used to be on a sat phone arguing with their wives all yeah. night? And then in the morning, like, then you go to work the next They're day. They're not checked in. You yeah. know? And I knew that. And so I was like, okay, it's time to move on then. You know, between, between the regiment and between contracting, I got 14 deployments and I was gone, basically gone for almost a five-year block of time. Yeah. Okay, it's time to move on. Mm. And I was like, well, what's next? And I was like, dude, the U.S. Marshals. Because there was a show about the U.S. Marshals, and it looked high speed. Yeah. And I was you know, the federal government, for people that aren't familiar with, because I ended up doing uh, a, a few years both with the U.S. Marshals and with a local police department. Local cops are fucking squared away. The feds, in my experience, are kind of a shit show, bro. Yeah, they same. Have all, they have all the funding. They have the budget. They have all the cool gear. But they're not doing the job day in and day out. Yeah. And so if you're not doing the job day in and day out, you don't become very proficient at it. Mm-hmm. And what I saw, you know, I was I ended up being with the U.S. Marshals for five years and it was just continuously I'm being let down. I'm being let down. And, uh, you know, it's like anywhere. There's a lot of cool people, but the the chain of command was broken. The agency leadership was broken. Mm. And I talked to one of your teammates. That worked with you. I trained him in Texas. What was it? Who do you he, remember his name? Tall, handsome dude, like fit, super fit. Juan Madrano. He's a white dude. 
<laughs> you can't say that the name <laughs> that's racist to assume. oh wait that's a first name <laughs> yeah one of, yeah i had a i had a homie in los angeles named juan that was he was a model before he became that's a, him became a deputy super handsome so dude. Yeah, yeah. yeah 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 uh super fucking cool guy and that's the thing a lot of people inside the marshal service are cool people yeah because that attracts the right kind of people and i'm here to tell you almost everybody inside that agency it feels like they got let down a little he, bit same he was disappointed he's yeah. like He's like, man, it's just disappointing because we're going. He's getting moved. Uh huh. I think he wanted me to tell you. I don't know if I told you, but he he he's getting moved somewhere else where there's more action and it's more squared away. Yeah. And he's looking forward to getting away from there. Well, and and here's the truth about the Marshal Service is the Marshal Service has 94 different districts, and each district's chain of command kind of gets to operate aut- on auton. Say that word for me. Autonomously. Autonomously. Yeah. And uh, so. Where you get stationed determines your determines experience. if it's an absolute dog shit experience or if it's fucking awesome. And what you find and you were LA? I was Los Angeles. Oh yeah. Wow. But I'll tell you this though. You would think that would be like epic. Well, I was on the I ended up getting on the Los Angeles Marshal Service special response team, mm-hmm. and that was epic. Yeah. That was the high risk warrants, and that was getting cool training. Yeah, they raids. Sent, yeah, raids. They sent me through SWAT school. And then also the guys on the SRT team, bunch of cool guys. Yeah. And we would have fun. But the thing is, the Los Angeles SRT team would get two training days a month, and then we would get probably two live hits a month. Yeah. So that's four days of doing cool shit. And the rest is... And the rest, you're sitting in court, you're transporting prisoners, Ugh. or you're sitting on prisoners. Ugh. Like in hospitals... And, and, oh, bro, and, and and dude, like scumbags. These are actually like the the worst people of our society, too, right? Well, High well, risk. Well, let me tell you this though, because most of the guys that are in custody, federal custody in Los Angeles, are gangbangers, and they're they're arrested on RICO and conspiracy charges. And bro, that I I found that I like most of those guys. Yeah. Like we're not cut because they're higher level guys. They're higher level guys. Yeah. And there was a guy that I was tasked with. Uh, he broke his shoulder in custody and he had to get an MRI and then he had to get surgery. So he needed to, he got bounced back and forth to the, uh, the medical facility down there probably like six or seven times. And I was in charge of his detail. I like, I ended up like, and he was a Mexican mafia shot caller. Yeah. He was in solitary confinement, very high up in the, the prison ranking system. Yeah. He was cool as fuck, bro. They're usually intelligent, bro. We, intelligent, we, used educated. Have, we used to have great conversations. Yeah. And I remember one day I was taking him to the hospital and he's like, Hey deputy, can I ask you a massive favor? And I was like, of course you can. What's up? And I'd always just talk to him just like we're talking now because in that culture, respect is everything. Of course. Right? He goes, bro, I've been in solitary confinement for 24 months. I know we're getting out of the car in a few minutes, and I know the sun's out. Can I just stand and take the sun in for even even 10 seconds? Reasonable and, you know, ask? Yeah, and a lot of people, most deputies would be like, you know, fuck no. Yeah, yeah. You know, like the, a yeah. lot of times deputies treat these people like animals. Yeah. But I never allowed, like, whatever their charges were between them and the judicial system, that has nothing to do with how him and I interact and treat of each course. other. Of course. And I was like... Yeah, bro, I'm cool with that. You can get a little bit of sun. And he stood there, bro, and it was like orgasmic for him. Twenty four months in solitary confinement. Taking the sun in. And I let him sit there for like a minute or two. And bro, then they buy in on you as well. Yeah. And and, and this might sound kind of crazy, but they have a, a, a hierarchy and a system and they everything do. too. And 
they will take care of the deputies that take care of them. Yep. Like, don't fuck with that guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Don't kill that guy. Yeah. 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 And uh, I've always said, like, and fuck, I don't even remember this dude's name, but I could go probably have a beer with him. Yeah. I mean, he's probably still in solitary confinement. You know what I mean? But it's like a lot of those guys... And it was kind of an eye opener for me because like, you know, you, you watch these gangbanger movies and you think like that criminal lifestyle is just shitty people. But this is the truth about it. Some of the guys that we were arresting in Compton and fucking South Central are like my great grandfather lived in these projects, slinging dope and pimping hose. Yeah. This is all I've known since I was in diapers. Yeah. And it's like, you know, abusive family situations. Yeah. And the gangbanging life. Bro, I joined a gang when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. It just happened to be called Second Ranger Battalion. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like young men are drawn to that camaraderie and that that like sense of belonging. Those tribes. And those kids found it on the streets. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's easy to sit here and say like, well, you know, you could pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you're, you ultimately determine your destiny. But if I'm being completely honest, if I grew up in that environment, there's a good chance I'd probably be in custody. Of course, yeah. Same. I feel the same way. And so I ended up doing that for five years, man, and uh, a good experience, and I made a lot of good relationships. The best part about that is I got my black belt in jiu-jitsu out of Los Angeles Mm. under Joao Assis and Marcus Bouchesha, who were like some of the best grapplers to ever live. And, I mean, what a blessing in disguise to get stationed there because in Southern California and L.A., the jiu-jitsu scene is literally the best in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, the guys used to tell me, they're like, once you're a good enough jiu-jitsu athlete to actually make it professionally, they leave Brazil and they move to America. And Brazilians like to be warm. So it's either Florida or Southern California. Yeah. And that kind of became the Mecca, mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into jiu-jitsu more. But in 2014, my dad was diagnosed terminal and I went to my chain of command. And I already wasn't happy with the agency. So it made this decision pretty easy. I said, hey, my dad is diagnosed and he had like six months to live. The whole reason I left the military and contracting was to have a closer relationship with my family and I need to prioritize this. So I said, we can do a, uh, like a PCS move or, or even just like a temporary duty station change. And, uh, and I'll show you the fucking email, bro. I put the request in and I submitted it through my supervisor, my chief, they pushed it up to headquarters and headquarters responded back verbatim. If you need to be with your dad for the next six months, he can move to Los Angeles. <laughs> wow. Who did that come from? His name is Brian Snell with the U.S. Marshal Service. What a piece of shit. And if I ever see you, you will still lose teeth. What a piece of shit. Because, man. like, dude, my dad is dying. This isn't a joke. This isn't something to be funny about. Wow. Like, and me and my dad, like like most father-son relationships, we had our ups and downs. But for the last 15 years of our life, or his life, we were very, very close. Yeah. And it was important for me to be there to support my family. And, uh, man, that email came through, and I walked into my supervisor's office. I said, I dare any man in our district to say this to my face well, and fucking see what happens. Like, no, no, Anderson, listen. No, dude, don't get crazy. You know, it's, that's just protocol. That's, you know. That's not protocol. I said, it ain't fucking protocol. It's insulting. There's nothing protocol about that. And I'm fucking really mad about it. And I tried to be reasonable. And now you're going to make me be unreasonable. So I'm going home with or without the agency. All right. You can't do that. Listen, Greg, listen, calm down, be patient. And I said, my, my, my choice is fucking made. 
I went into our pay system. It's called Web TNA, and uh, you log your hours there. And one one little drop down tab that you have as an option is leave without pay. <laughs> and I clicked leave without pay and put the block for one year, mm. and just drove home. Nice. And for the next, and my dad lived for five weeks, bro. Wow. He lived for way less than they expected. Wow. So I've never regretted that decision. So he got six months and they gave him five. They gave him six. He was diagnosed and they gave him six months to live and he he lived for five weeks. Wow, dude. And we got a lot of closure. We spent a lot of time together. So it ended up being what I needed. Yeah. But the funny thing is, bro, for the next year, the marshal service like, Greg, you have to return to work. Like you can't just stay gone. You're on leave. Yeah, like, and I was like, nope, I'm I'm enjoying my time up here. I'm not coming back. Maybe I'll come back in a little while. <laughs> and bro, what fucking job? You can't. They can't you, fire can you. Can you not? Because I was a fucking good deputy. Yeah, I had no paper trail. I had no negative counseling statements. Yeah. They could. not. They didn't have a way to get you. And bro, out. and I was a fucking eighteen eleven criminal investigator. Like, yeah, they can't fire you. And I remember thinking, like, dude, if I worked at McDonald's, yeah, and I said I'm not coming to work today. I'd probably get fired. Yeah. I'm a U.S. Marshal that said I'm not coming to work for a year. And you're like, they're, you're good. And they're like, uh, if if you're not willing to come back, we can't backfill your spot because we can't fire you. So we're down a body now. They're like trying to play the guilt game. With me. <laughs> Please come back. And then after a year, my chief finally wrote me. He goes, well, after not showing up for work for a year, we have enough paper trail to terminate you and we're going to terminate you on this date. And I said, don't worry about it. I quit. Consider this my resignation. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, everyone thought I was crazy. They're like, dude, the U S Marshal is one of the hardest jobs to get. And it's like, I don't care how hard it is. Once you get there, you're not enjoying it. Why the fuck would you stay? Yeah. Yeah. Is that a prison sentence? Yeah. (laughs) And bro, a lot of people think that it is. Yeah. So then I was like, okay, well let's take another stab at law enforcement. And I joined a local police department in Seattle. Mm. and uh, ended up doing four years there. And here's the thing about that department. It was the Port, the port Authority, the Port of Seattle. Yeah. So a lot of people get that confused. They think I was with uh, SPD, with Seattle PD. The port has jurisdiction for the airport, the seaport, and the, some of the surrounding properties. It's a state asset. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I was like, it's a smaller department, and smaller departments are usually less bullshit. Yeah. And so I went to work for them. And to tell you the truth, I didn't enjoy the day-to-day job as a police officer. I never did. Because you're dealing with car prowls. You're dealing with drugs. You're dealing with petty theft. You know, I arrested a guy taking pictures of a kid pissing in a urinal one time. And it's like, that felt pretty good. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because like some dude was like, man, I got check this out. There's a guy in there taking pictures of this kid. And I took a picture of him taking a picture of the kid. It was like, oh, good on you, bro. You know, you're putting some evidence together. Wow. And, uh, you know, it's like, that's a shitty person. And I put him in handcuffs and took him into custody. Was he just into that? I oh, don't bro, yeah. Was it on his phone? He's a ch- Yeah, he was a child molester. Oh, wow. And come to find out, he worked at the local children's museum, too. Oh, so it's wow. like, man, we're pro- that's good police work. That's cool, right? I can count on my hands how many times I did something that I felt like was beneficial to society yeah or like uh uh, a guy had a heart attack one time and i was me and my partner were first on scene and we revived him and it's like i've been cpr certified for a decade but i'd never actually done it felt the ribs break and then watch him 
throw the AED on him and then watch him come back to life, right? Wow. And then a month later, him and his family came down and thanked me. Wow. And it's like, that's what being a police officer should feel like. Yes. And you get those feelings once or twice a year, and the rest of the time, it's bullshit, bro. Yeah. And it's just, it's it's a toxic culture. And it's, uh, you know, I don't like to, people sometimes think that I shit on police officers, and I don't. Hmm. This is just my own experience. Everybody I know that's been in the profession for over a decade hates the job. Same. I've I, never met yeah. anybody who didn't have really serious gripes about the job. And, and if they did say they're good with it, it's because of the pay. Yeah. Nothing about the job they like. And you find dudes well, and women, too, that it's like they hit that 10-year mark. They're burned out. Their body's broken mm -hmm. because you're sitting. My kid was 37 pounds, bro. Like, what are we talking? Like, like I always say, what are we talking about? Yeah. Like, I'm not sitting going, on your butt. Yeah, I'm not a going on a car. raid in Afghanistan. Yeah. I'm a, on patrol in Seattle. And, and then, yeah, sitting in your car all fucking day. And it's hard on your mind, body, and spirit. And I honestly think the, the profession of police work, people should look at it as a decade of their life. If you have that calling to serve, and if that's something you want to experience, go do that and be a good cop mm -hmm. and put the right energy into it. But I say seven to 10 years in, yeah. once you start feeling beat down and, and disgruntled, it's time to move on. Mm. Because man, so many people are alcoholics. They're like, they're bitter. Dude. They're not in a good space So many law enforcement officers are, are- All of them, bro. All the guys I hang out with after training, they just get smashed. And and there's-, yeah, there's yeah, and they're good guys. But yeah, they of just, course. They have a way that they desensitize themselves because they just are trying to- take away the pain and bro like i know when you were a private you said you were fixated on being healthy and mm -hmm. like making good choices and shit most privates me included were not that mm. like we train our asses off all week to and, get smashed and then we go out and party and fight and be wild rangers in tacoma washington mm -hmm. on the night on the fucking weekends and i think that's okay in your early 20s mm -hmm. but drinking like that when you're in your late 40s still man you got to pull your life together yeah and a lot of cops on the surface, they look like they're squared away and their life is an absolute shambles. Mm. And it's just sad, man. And so I knew just looking at the looking at the environment that I was operating in, it's like I need an exit plan at some point. I'm not quite sure what that's gonna be, but I can't do this forever. Yeah. And I started my jujitsu academy and that was up and running the whole time I was a police officer in Seattle. But it never did very well. It was a very small club. We had like we always had like under 30 students and I mean, 30 students barely keeps the lights on. Right. And it was almost a wash. So me and Jenny were always like, it's, it's basically, it doesn't produce anything, but we have a cool group of guys and I get to train for free mm -hmm. and it's my Academy. So it was always cool. And then, uh, so I didn't think that that would be a viable exit strategy to leave law enforcement because hundred K a year in benefits when I got three young daughters, I'm going to need something to work, you know? Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't until the COVID shit started popping off and all the lockdowns and people had to shut their businesses down. You couldn't go to the park. You couldn't go, you couldn't go out on your boat. Like you couldn't remember that guy going surfing. surfing. You can't go surfing. They were tracking him with a boat, two boats, bro. Like interdicting him. And bro, that was a big, that was a big one for me. I was sitting in the lunchroom eating lunch with a bunch of cops and we're watching this paddleboarder be chased by two police boats and i mean you fucking know me 
I'm passionate. I, I, I don't hold anything back. And I'm sitting in the lunchroom and I'm like, what the fuck are those cops doing? I said, no cop on that boat wants to be doing that. And, and in my opinion, they're violating that guy's constitutional rights. Like, I understand that the governors are trying to like completely, you know, they, they implemented state of emergency and now they say they can basically do whatever they want, but they can't do whatever they want Yeah, because our citizens' constitutional rights come first. And if you disagree with me on that, that's cool. We can, we can have a dialogue about it, but I have to operate based on how I feel and how I interpret my oath. Mm. And how I interpret our oath is our citizens' rights are at the top. Yeah. Period. 100%. And, uh, man, I saw him chasing that guy and arrest him. And, and here's the deal, bro. Every single cop in the lunchroom was horrified with me. Mm. I'm just the guy speaking out and yelling in the lunchroom because I was crazy Anderson, mm -hmm. right? And then, like, I mean, we all saw how many different examples of that felt like a, vi a gross violation of people's rights. Mm. And the one that set me off was they, they were doing undercover... Uh, sting operations on women painting nails at a home salon in their basement. And that hits home for you. Like that was your, I grew up in that. Yeah, that was what your mom did. That was my did. mom's business. Imagine if undercover dudes came into your house and arrested your mom. People like, would die. Yeah. And that's why I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like, because if that was my, exactly, if that was my wife, those cops would be dead. And it's like, sorry that you're a 24-year-old deputy and you're just doing what you're told. But at the end of the day, if you violate my wife's constitutional rights and put her in handcuffs, I will fucking kill you. Yeah. Like, I was mad. Mm. And then I was like, bro, that's going to start happening. That's the next phase of this. Mm. People are going to start killing cops. And I was like, and I'm a cop. That's not... The, the relationship between the public and the professional law enforcement, there's always an ebb and flow to it, right? Mm -hmm. But there's always a strain, and I was like, this is going to make people hate cops nationwide. Mm. And it's not cops that are doing this, but it is cops that are enforcing it. Mm. And then that's when it motivated me. I said, I need to talk about this publicly. And I made the video. Yeah. And all viral did, video. Yeah, a viral video. I was sitting in my patrol car. And I simply just stated that. And I like to swear and I like to be wild and talk shit. But I was like, if, if cops are going to receive this, it needs to come from me in uniform. And I need to speak from the heart and I need to speak professionally. And if you notice, there's no F bombs. There's no, like I wanted this to be received mm. and it was bro. Is it still online? Oh, of course it is. It's still yeah. on my Instagram. Yeah. If you go back to May 5th of 2020. Yeah. How many views does that have? On my Instagram alone, over a million, mm. but it got ripped and it was all over Twitter, all over YouTube. News. All of, yeah. The yeah. news, Fox news, CNN. And I didn't put it on any of those platforms. Yeah. On one share on Facebook, it got 14 million views. Wow. The Medal of Honor is the highest decoration for military valor in action. And you can help Black Raffle Coffee Company make sure the stories of those awarded this rare distinction are never forgotten. For every box of 22-count Medal of Honor coffee pods you buy from Walmart, Black Rifle Coffee Company will donate all the profits to support the construction of the new National Medal of Honor Museum. You can help preserve the legacies of these heroes with Medal of Honor coffee. In a moment in time, my whole life changed because my commander, dude, my commander, I don't know if I told you this or not. He called me right after the video. He goes, bro, I just saw what you put online. Excellent message. And this department has your back. Really? And I was like, fuck yeah. And, and to make it clear, I was not personally being asked to go arrest women at the park. Yeah. And I said that on the video. I said, fortunately for me, 
You work for a department that's not. I work it. for a department that is chosen not to implement these t- this strategy. But that doesn't mean that I don't feel like that is not an important thing that needs to be addressed. And I said to him verbatim, I said, you guys, if if you're doing something as a police officer that you know in your heart is wrong and you know in your heart is in violation of your oath, you have to understand that the citizens' rights come before paychecks. Yeah. So, and if you're not willing to risk your paycheck to be on the side of right, what are we doing? You know? Like, we don't serve the mayor. We don't serve the governor. This yeah. isn't a dictatorship. We serve the people of Washington State. Yeah. And, uh, man, my commander liked it. And then the next morning, he called me. He goes, hey, bro, I know uh, I know we already talked about your video, but I've been, I've been directed to tell you that it's getting way too big, way too fast, and it's time to pull the plug on it. What I'm does like, that mean? I said, why would we have to pull the plug on a message that you said was good? Yeah. You know? He's like, uh... You could tell, like he was he was stuck in the middle conundrum because he liked the video, but someone higher up, which I later found out was likely the governor's office, said, "Hey, get get rid of this now." And uh, I said, "Sir, listen, I said verbatim in the video that being being on the side of right and being authentic and being true is more important than our paycheck. If I pull that, if I rescind my words." to keep a paycheck. Now I don't hold like everybody that knows me will lose respect for me. Mm. I said, so at the end of the day, if you have to fire me for saying that our priority is our citizens, constitutional rights, then that's what you're going to have to do. And then that's what they did. Wow. And, uh, you know, it's funny because people will still be like, man, I'm sorry that happened to you. Fuck. No, the best thing, best thing that ever happened to me. I'm, I wouldn't be sitting here with you. You know yeah. what I mean? Like crazy. Me and you forged a friendship. I forged friendships with people all over the United States with this. Crazy. You know, I met Andy and me and Andy hit it off. Uh, Andy Stump and Andy Frisella. And it's like, it's weird how one video that touches people a certain way can actually build a network. And it's been fucking nuts, man. Yeah, I talked about you on Joe Rogan's podcast. Yeah, bro. And Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah, and Rogan's like, oh yeah, that guy from Seattle. I like that guy. Yeah, like he, the jujitsu guy. Yeah, what are we talking? <laughs> you know, what are we talking about? I and, think he uh, even knew your black belt or something. He said, yeah, he's he's a whatever black belt or something, yeah, something nuts, like that. I was bro. Like, huh. And uh, so what that did for me is it it opened up opportunities, you know. And bro, like, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. America rallied and sent me a massive GoFundMe. Yeah. Right? Which is at a minimum what they should have done in the first place. Yeah, which... bro. And and it's funny because... You should have sued that department. I tried. Yeah. I spent a lot of that GoFundMe hiring lawyers and trying to sue them. Yeah. And... Uh, why didn't it... Why? Because... Well, there, here's the thing. On Fox News, when I was on Laura Ingram's show, you know, they're like... Their lawyers were on there and they're like, we're looking at this case and we're going to take them down and we have your back and we're going to go, we're going to make this right. And like, that's all cool, you know, evening news clips. And then when I actually was offline talking to them about the case, they're like, well, you know, once we really review your department's policy, it looks like they really crossed their T's and dotted all their I's and it's, it's going to be real hard to go after them. It looks like they kind of. You know, they they have it very, they, their policy kind of has it locked in. We're going to have a hard time winning this case. I was like, oh, that's, that didn't, I guess that wouldn't sound good to say on the evening news. So, wow. and so I spent a lot of money. We sent a, a letter to the department informing them that they were going to be sued. And uh, 
the lawyer that I was working with sent them a demand letter, like, uh, you know, like we can just settle here now and be done. And then the lawyers told me, they said, you know, the more we look at this, the more we think this is going to be an unwinnable case. So we can't take it on a percentage. We're going to have to take it on a fixed rate. So win or lose, you're going to have to pay the same thing. And I was like, this is, this is not looking good. Mm. And then I, I inquired with two other firms and they both came to that conclusion. And I was like, I'm out because I'm not going to spend 200 grand to lose. Yeah. You know what I mean? I could yeah. spend that 200 grand and what build a firearm range. Yeah. Which is what I did, bro. Well, you're a white guy too. Like if, like if you were anything else, yeah, yeah. you would, they would have had a case, but because you're just like a white dude and this happened before George Floyd, yeah, yeah. but then Floyd happened post this George and and that's the interesting thing man you realize your story your viral video you're you're the most important thing in America right now it's just flavor of the week bro and George Floyd happened I mean it was May 5th of 2020 I think George Floyd was within a couple weeks of that wow and then it was like Greg who like that, that story was gone yeah and once it was gone nobody cared about being a part of it yeah and and so me and Jenny sat down and was like man we spent tens of thousands of dollars out of this GoFundMe for lawyers and we're continuously being told that you're likely going to lose all that money if you keep fighting this case mm. we're like all right it's time to shift yeah and, and, and make pick it. up the pieces yeah. and start over exactly and luckily we still had you know four hundred thousand dollars to do that and and you know it's weird how a lot of, we caught a lot of hate for that mm. but it, the gofundme is public information you can go look bro it's a bunch of people that send five and ten dollars yeah. They, they, you know what I mean? It was like their morning coffee, basically. Yeah. But when 100,000 people do that, it adds up fast. Yeah, of course. And uh, so I said, all right, what's next? Uh, about that time, Andy Stump had me on Cleared Hot, and him and I hit it off, and we had a fun episode. And you know Andy's killing it. I don't know what his download numbers are, but they're fucking huge. They're, they're massive. He's a big podcast. And we got bombarded with emails after that saying that was a fucking awesome episode. When are you starting a podcast? Oh, and I'm like, that's weird. Like, why would I do, you know what I mean? I just, yeah. it's not something that I thought about. And after we got that email a hundred times, I was like, why not? I text Andy. I said, what do I need, bro? And he sent me like the list of like the mics and the roadcaster mm-hmm. Adobe edition, everything that he uses. I bought it all and just started. Dang. And bro, the podcast makes more now than I made as a police officer. Isn't that crazy? Isn't, yeah. And, and like. With your f- freedom. With my freedom to mm-hmm. sit here and do this with people that I like, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, and the podcast is called Endless Endeavor for people that are interested if they listen to me in here and say, oh, I actually like that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on the back of your No One's Coming to Save You shirt. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I had a, I released an episode on endless endeavor called no one's coming to save you and then i said you know what let's let's release a shirt while this episode drops they'll kind of be in unison together yeah and then those shirts blew up bro yeah and i mean we made more in one month selling no one's coming to save you shirts we made twice as much in one month as i made as a police officer wow and i'm sitting here thinking bro being in the military and being in law enforcement you're doing good things. You're doing an honorable mission, but it forces you to stay thinking small. Yeah. If you would have told me I could sit in front of a microphone and press shirts and make three times as much money, yeah, I'd be like, "You're fucking crazy." Doing bro. what I enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then the the buzz around my story and my podcast 
more and more people started hearing about who I was and my jiu-jitsu academy exploded. And we're just under 200 members now. Wow. And it's like, as we speak, my new facility is almost done. While I was here over the weekend, we got the power in, we had the new sidewalks board, and we're going to be opening our new facility in mid-April. And it's like, man, for the first time in my life, I'm 100% free. Mm. I'm doing what I want with my time. Mm -hmm. And financially, we're doing the best we've ever done. Mm. And it was all just based on a choice of deciding to step outside of the hamster wheel that I was stuck in and just see what happens. Mm. But when you make that choice to step outside of that hamster wheel, it's going to feel fucking uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, at first. Yeah. yeah. And that, that initial discomfort is what disallows most people to take mm-hmm. that first step. Yeah. And once people started seeing my stories, like this is the cop that started the podcast and now is doing well for himself. I get bombarded by cops that are like, bro, your story's inspirational. I need to do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I tell them all the same thing. You can do that. Yeah. Everybody can, bro. There's a couple steps. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, here's a cool story, man. And I don't know how I like to talk as you can tell. So I don't know how no, long this is your good. episodes like to be. No, these are great. Um, when I went to Andy's grand opening to support black rifle Kalispell, two guys pulled me aside and they're like, bro, we have to talk to you. They're like, we're fans of Andy and we're, we're here to support him. But when we heard you were going to be here, that's why we traveled here. We live in Coeur d'Alene and we have to tell you a story. And they were two guys that were patrol officers that hated their life. They, I know who you're talking about. North Idaho Archery. Yeah. Bro. I met them too, yeah. And they said to me. They were coming to see you. Uh, they told me they were coming to see you. Yeah, dude. And that's what they said. They said, we came last weekend because we thought you might be out here with Mike and Andy. Yeah. And then when we realized that you were coming the following weekend, we came out again because we wanted to tell you our story. And bro, those two guys listened to the podcast and saw that like, man, I stepped outside of law enforcement and I put all my eggs into podcasting and jujitsu. And now I'm living a life that I'm free. And, and here's the thing. Like I tell people that financially it's working out for me, but even if I was making comparable or even maybe a little less money, as long as I could live doing the things that I love, man, you're free. It's what's your, more viable what's your freedom worth? Yeah. And they're like, you're always talking about this on your show. And, and I want to say their names are Austin and John. One and, big dude. That yeah. Dude's yep, massive. Yeah. And uh, handsome. Sorry. Handsome guys. Guys. Sorry guys. If I got that wrong, handsome but, guys. uh, I was like, dude, or they're like, dude, we listened to that. And we said, it's time for us to do that and step outside of law enforcement and chase our passion. And we both, they hung it up. Yeah. They both love archery. This is our passion. Dude, let's start an archery shop. And they did it. And dude, they, they said both of them, they like came alive. Like it it lit a fire in their soul. You could tell how energetic they were. They were happy. And, and guys, like, and I'm sure your podcast is very similar to mine where a lot of first responders, military, and law enforcement consume your podcast. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're in that place where you're dissatisfied with your life, you can still, we're in our 40s. Mm. Some of you guys, like, in, even in your late 20s or 30s, man, you can shift right now. Yeah. And you it's got more road late. in front of you than you got behind you. Yeah. And you can make whatever you want happen, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And I went down some of the woo-woo shit, too. Like, I have a visualization board. I meditate on my ideas. And it was actually Andy Frisella that told me about that stuff. And it's like, okay, it sounds kind of crazy, but his life, the shit that he wants to get done, he gets done. Oh, yeah, he executes. And so I was like, all right, let's start implementing this stuff and see where it goes. And I can't sit here and tell you 
how it's working, but it's working. Yeah. Is it, is that when you visualize, does that just empower you as an individual or does it actually have some type of vibrational change on the environment? I don't know what it is, but when you start to have this self, the sense of self belief, man, I feel like we become unstoppable Mm. and I feel this momentum just keeps going. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole reason we're here. We're partnering and we're going to do some big things Mm -hmm. and it's like, man, life is whatever you make it. Yeah. You could hide in a hole and or hide in your head and not do anything. Hide yeah. in a patrol car and not do anything where you could just like step outside of that, be uncomfortable. Yep. And then be something that you've always wanted to be. And be happy for once. Be free for once. And I remember I don't know if we had a conversation or if I was it's weird knowing guys that do a lot of podcasts mm-hmm. because it's like, did we talk about that? Or yeah. did I listen to him? Or did we listen hot, to yeah, you know? yeah. But you had a similar story where it's like you were in Pakistan, and you're like, dude, this isn't for me anymore. I'm burned out. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go start a company. Let's mm-hmm. go. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's all it takes. Yep. And then it takes some work after that to, to make that vision come to fruition. But it's weird that that concept's lost on most people. It is. And, and the commitment and endurance to see it through. Most people want instant gratification. So they have the idea. Like good idea fairies are yeah, easy yeah. to find. It's harder to find somebody who's willing to commit the time and focus on the mission, on executing. A lot of people just talk. Yeah. And a lot of people do this. And when they're talking, they're basically just staying in the planning phase. And you get locked in the planning phase for too long. That's just a form of procrastination. Yeah. Yeah. They're in isolation. They're like an isofac. And you're like, hey, guys, we need to get this done. Like, why are we still here? You know, like I think about this jujitsu thing we're doing. Like, it's going to be epic. You know why? Because we're going to do it. Yeah. Not because we talked about it, and then a, in the year later we're like, "Remember that jujitsu thing that we were talking about doing? That man, we should like, like we should do that. You want to go get something to eat? Yeah, yeah. Like we let's, we're doing it. We're going to do it. And bro, I can tell you one of the biggest things that's helped me along this way is spending time with guys like you, mm. guys like Andy, guys like Greg Lappin, like I built a circle of people that go out there and they do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my friends at home, too, I built a circle of people that go out there and they do. Mm. And when you're in a circle of people that are doers and not talkers, Mm -hmm. man, I look to my left and my right to my circle of friends. It's like, I got to up my game. Yeah. And I don't know if I told you or Casey this, but like, I feel like I've been on the grind pretty hard for the last 24 months. And I've accomplished a lot of what I've wanted to accomplish. But something that's always been in the back of my mind is a book, right? Mm. But I'm like, man, I got this going on. I got that going on. The kids, the gym, I'm building the new gym. I'm building my firearm range. I'm guns and geese. Like you're doing all this stuff and it's like, I'll get to the book. And then fucking you're twice as busy as me. And then you said, yeah, my book drops in June. And I was Mm. like, there you go. Yeah. My book's not dropping in June for one reason. I'm being lazy. Yeah. That's it, bro. Yeah. You know what I mean? And when you when you surround yourself with people that you look at what they're doing and you draw inspiration from it, mm-hmm. you know you have the right circle of people around you. Yeah, I believe that same way, man. You're definitely in my circle at some of five. And I look at, you know, you and Lappin and Andy Stump, Evan Hafer, all these close friends of mine, and I'm like, dude, just getting it done. Right? And and you know, it's like I did the book thing and I expect all of my close friends, you, Andy, all of them to do books. Yeah. Why? Because you need to get that piece of medium out into the world to allow people to learn from your experiences. And and it's necessary. 
like Chad Robichaud, saving yeah. uh, saving Aziz. Like, or his, yeah. he has another book that I read. Yeah, um, he's think, crushing, but I don't know how the hell he does it. Like, I'm like, did you write that? He's like, yeah, I wrote it on a plane. <laughs> but he's, but he's, I draw inspiration from him and like Jack Carr and Tim Kennedy, all these guys. And I'm like, we could do it all the things. We just need to make the time to do it together. But also we build efficiency in each other by giving each other the lessons learned. Like yeah. you don't have to make the same mistakes. I took two years to write it. I can put you in contact with a publisher who's going to help you because your mission your, your voice, your story, um, the things that you lead by example through in your community are important to tell the world. Yeah. I mean, everybody needs to know that stuff. And I, and I can tell you this, too. A big, a big part of what was holding me back, both with the book, with the gym, even, even when I was, like, in the regiment. Like, I've always had a, 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 a limiting sense of self-belief, hmm. right? It's kind of imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. It's like, dude, I'm around all these dudes that are fucking doing big things. Mm. And I don't feel like I'm one of those guys. And I feel like a lot of people in our circle kind of feel that way. Of course. Yeah. And so like. Lappin's story is exactly the same. Like I yeah. looked at Lappin and I said, dude, you have all these experiences. Why have you done all that stuff? And it comes from a place of insecurity. Yep. He wanted to be, he wanted to let people know that he was just as capable, so he did it all. Yeah, and just like you, it's like you're a U.S. Marshal, you're a police officer, you're SRT, you're a ranger. It's like you're a contractor. Like you've done everything, and that's not normal, by the way. But that's inspiration. Yeah, bro. And so, like, I, I finally, I would say, in the last three years, come to a place where it's like, man, you're not you're not the greatest guy ever, but you've done a lot of cool stuff, and you do have a lot of wisdom and knowledge to share with people. And I'll tell you where that really came alive for me was once my jiu-jitsu academy started blowing up, I started watching people change mm. based on attending my class. Mm. Not only getting proficient at grappling and becoming good at jiu-jitsu, but what it did to their spirit. Mm. What it did, like, man. And then the same thing from the podcast. I get letters all the time that are like, man, you talked about this diet that was basically meat-based and then starting to train jiu-jitsu four days a week, and I'm 40 pounds overweight, and I was like, you know what? Greg said it worked for him. I'm going to try it. And, dude, I'm in the best shape I've been in. And, like, I get those emails all the time. Mm -hmm. And what it's finally done for me is it's validated me as a man to be like, again, like, I'm not the end-all, be-all, but some of the things that I've done have worked well for me, and if I can impart some of that on other people and lift them up, mm. man, that's real shit, and that's powerful. Mm. And that's what, it, this, that's what all this is supposed to be about. Mm. That's why I have a gym. That's why I have a podcast. That's why you have Fieldcraft. How do we make people better mm -hmm. collectively? It's, almost, it's weird because I see the similarities in all of the guys, like you and Andy, and me and Andy Stump were talking about it, and I'm like, you have to write a book. And he's like, I'm not writing a book. And I'm like, you have to write a book. And he's like, all right, what am I going to write? I'm like, you, a leadership. I'm like, all right, finally. Like, okay, I'll do something with it. And like, we're writing a book together. And it's like, he finally feels comfortable in his own skin. Yeah. And like, we're all around the same age. We have profound experiences, but we're becoming more secure in a responsibility. 100%, bro. And saying, if nobody else is going to step up and lead young men or be a mentor for young people or do good things in the world, be the messenger, we have to accept that responsibility. Yes. And me and Evan and me and uh, Andy were recently talking about this. Like, nobody else is going to do it. Nobody else is going to do and it. And then if you, want, if you want all these things for your kids, you better start communicating to these generations 
that are going to be peered with your kids. Yes. Because you're setting them up for failure if you're not. And dude, I was always apprehensive of leadership mm. for whatever reason. And I hold leadership qualities just inherently, mm-hmm. but I was always apprehensive of raising my hand. Both the marshal service and my police department were like, when are you going to promote to supervisor? When my chief like pulled me into his office, like Greg, I want to pin you sergeant. You move the needle. People listen to you. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, chief, I've, I have only been here three and a half years. Mm. There's guys that have been here 10 that aren't sergeants. Mm. Like I don't feel comfortable. And really it was just me not being comfortable in my own skin. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And like, same thing. When I was a re- in regiment, everybody would fucking like go to the board and try and promote to E5. I'm like, I'm not going to the board. I'm not ready to take a team. And I didn't. And I'm in my, our first rotation to Afghanistan. And my PL is like, Anderson, come to my hooch. We have something to talk about. And I walk in there. I'm like, what's up, sir? He pulls my specialist rank off and pins me E5. He goes, you don't have a say in this because I have authority to do what's called combat promotions. You're taking Alpha 3-1. Go take your new team. Shut up. And I was like, what the f- I tried to avoid becoming sergeant, <laughs> you know? Is that called flo- fracking, flocking? There's a term for that. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, it I used don't to know. be like a It was just a, a term. A combat promotion. Could, it's like a co- commission, yeah. And, bro, uh, his name was uh, Lieutenant Satterland, and he was a awesome PL. I loved working for that guy. And when I didn't go to the board, he's like, oh, I got something for Anderson. That's awesome. He's becoming one of my team you leaders. You will be a leader. And, bro, being a team leader was one probably my favorite aspect of my time in the regiment. Yeah. And it's like, but I remember when he fucking pinned E5 on me and said, go take Alpha 3-1, I was like, fuck. And I literally went and got seven dash eight and like read the whole thing. Yeah. Cause I'm like, dude, all these like little taking it serious, all of these little fucking infantrymen tactics that, yeah, we learned at Fort Benning when we were 18. Like if people want to ask me questions about it or, or they want to look to me for the answers, I don't feel like I'm as dialed in as I need to be. Yeah. And then the other side of it is remember when you showed up and you were the new private, mm. you looked at your team leader was a God. Yeah. Yeah. And I met my team leader's name was Sergeant Lynch. And, uh, I remember looking. What's at his first name? Neil. No, I don't know. Do you know? know I know Mike Lynch and a Pat Lynch. Okay, and uh, he went and worked with some of your guys's after the fact. Oh, so really? It, yeah. If you'd cross paths, it wouldn't surprise me. But I remember thinking, like, when it came time for me to be five, I'm like, I'm nowhere near Sergeant Lynch, you know. Mm. But then when I talked to the privates that I had years later, because I'm still friends with some of my yeah. privates, like, they did God. look at us like that. <laughs> yeah. Me and Tobin were the guys. You yeah, know? and it's like. That's just how the cycle works. It does. It you know? does. It's it's weird because it in our lives of insecurity, it drives us to be better, more profound versions of ourselves because we're holding ourselves more accountable. Whether that's self being self critical, being more introspective, there's a benefit to that. Every one of us, I, I don't know, maybe it's because we attract each other. Mm-hmm. Every one of us are literally the same. They're just, they're just minor deviations. Yeah. You're better at jujitsu. You know what I mean? Like a- Andy's, you know, better at flying around in a wingsuit. Better at flying upside <laughs> down in a wingsuit. Yeah. They're, everybody's got their little thing, right? And it's it's crazy. Well, bro, I remember like because you did my podcast two years ago, mm-hmm. but again, like I flew in. To, it was Prescott, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And I went to your headquarters there. We spent ninety minutes together, and then I drove out. That's right. Yeah. And we didn't get to know each other. No, at all, not at all. Right? We it didn't was have time. Just like. You were busy. When I pulled up, you and 
you and Kevin Owens were yeah. loading ammo in the back of a van. And it was <laughs> yeah. like, I remember saying, bro, you need help loading, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, it wasn't until you came to my house you know, six or eight months ago, whatever it fucking was. And we just sat around my, my kitchen Island yeah. and told stories and bonded. And, and your girlfriend says, man, I feel like I'm sitting here with two mics. You're the same person. The remember same she said that the same human being. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, fuck yeah, bro. Like it's I'm, crazy. Found another member of the tribe. Yeah. And that's what it's all about, dude. It's so awesome. You know? It's so crazy because we're, I mean, you could literally put us anywhere. You could like, we could hot swap and it'd be the same experience. Like you, like you do your thing. Like we could literally be interchangeable and adaptable in life. And that's rare. Lappin's that way. Andy, Evan. Well, and bro, like when me and Lap, me and Lappin have not been friends that long. Yeah. I think it was 2018 when we connected. Yeah. So, I mean, it's going on four or five years. That's yeah, a yeah, decent yeah. amount of time. But I knew he was my homie in a day. I could just yeah, like you same, know it, right? Same. I'm like, like you said to me, he's I one of the homies. You said it yesterday, the day before. You said, like, where where do you fucking find this guy? Where did you find this? Dude? <laughs> you know, he's great, and he's good at everything. Yeah, he's got good his his character. Like you could just tell he's a good he's he's a good human being. Yeah. that's that's the common trait, right? We all have our intricacies and our our weirdnesses and whatever the oddities of of how people are, but at the core, it's like you just want people to be better. Yeah. And you're not a dickhead. There's plenty of dickheads. Yes. Um, and I want nothing to do with those people. I just want good people and it just helps that everybody has enough skill sets per person to kill a lot of people. And bro, I don't know how I kind of came to this realization. But even as a young Ranger private, I knew that the corporals and the sergeants that just talked to everyone like shit and just smoked the dog shit out of you. I remember thinking like, dude, when I'm standing in their shoes one day, I won't be one of them. Yeah. And some some extenuating circumstances played into that because 9-11 happened. Mm. And I remember thinking even more so. I'm like, I'm going downrange with these privates. I want to respect them and I want them to respect me. Like, this, is, this isn't fucking, we're going to haze the fuck out of you on Saturday night anymore because yeah. these are my brothers that we're going to war with. Yeah, there's different stakes. But even as a young private, I was like, this, this weird, archaic way of disrespecting people as a way of leadership, something feels off. Yeah. And uh, I didn't like it either. It is off. Yeah, it is. Because you gain nothing by making people feel like they're a less version of themselves. Yeah. You gain everything from building them up and making and empowering them. Mm -hmm. You know? It's like, how are those people doing in civilian life? Yes. By the way? You know what my theory is on this? I think it, I think it goes all the way back into world war two where the draft like, you're going to join the army, and you're going to do what we say, and you're going to go fucking most likely die. Mm -hmm. In order to train people and get them ready, uh, you know, entire battalions of people that didn't want to be there, man, you probably have to almost treat them like prisoners. And yeah. be hard on them. Yeah. And dress right dress and shut the fuck up and do what you're told, right? Mm -hmm. And the same thing in Vietnam. Like, mm -hmm. you're going to go fucking do what we say or else. Yeah. And that started to become like the military culture. Man, the GWA, every fucking person there raised their hand and said, I want to be here yeah. right now. Yeah. That person doesn't need to be treated like that. Nope. They could. They didn't have to try and dodge the draft. They could be in college if they wanted to be. Mm -hmm. They said, I want to be part of this. And uh, I also think that the natural progression for a lot of people in the military is law enforcement afterwards. Mm -hmm. And that culture is kind of permeated into dude, law enforcement. it has, yeah, for sure. And it's like, dude. I see it all the time. If you're a fucking sergeant, 
and you have to fucking yell at people, you, if you have to tell people you're in charge, you aren't. Yeah, if you have to demand respect and you don't command it in your presence, you know, in their demeanor. And it was it's and I had several different instances take place throughout my life when it's like, man, leadership in America military and American law enforcement, it's broken, dude. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people they stand on their rank. They don't stand on who they are as a man. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um did I ever tell you that story about the colonel and the chow hall in Baghdad? Hmm. Dude, we did a move from Ramadi with Keith Kidd, the same principal with my with our triple canopy team to Baghdad, mm-hmm. and uh, while he was dropped off at a meeting, we went to the one of the chow halls to get to fucking get lunch, mm. and we're waiting in line, and there's a specialist in front of the chow hall, and he goes, "Hey, if you don't have a chow hall ID in the green zone, you can't eat in here." And I said, "Listen, bro," and, and dude, my my fucking shift leaders behind me, the project managers behind me. But you know how it is in the contracting world, anybody steps up and takes charge of the situation, right? Yeah, of course. And I was the first in line. I said, listen, bro, we're on, a, we're on a move right now. We're based out of Ramadi. We don't know your protocols or your procedures or what IDs we need to eat. We all have our cat cards. So, you know, you can tell I'm sitting here speaking to you in English and you can see my cat card. Like you can tell we're US and we're fucking on base, right? If you need a certain piece of documentation or something in the future, let us know what we need. We'll get it done. And next time we come in town, we'll have everything squared away. But right now, my team still needs to eat. And a full bird colonel, like 10 people in the back of the line, goes, what the hell's going on up there? Because the line got held up for 20 seconds while me and this kid had a dialogue, right? Mm. And he walks up here. He's, he has no part of what's going on right now, right? Mm. And now a specialist is like, um, sir, I told them they don't have the right IDs, so they can't be here. And he goes, if you don't have the right IDs and he told you you can't be here, beat it. Ooh, that wouldn't fare well. And I said, you're used to talking to people like that because you have a fucking little bird on your collar. And if you talk to me like that again, I'm going to knock your fucking teeth down your throat. Ooh. And bro, I saw fear in this man's eyes <laughs> because it's like, dude, who talks to a colonel like that? Mm-hmm. Right? And right at that time, my shift leader is now, and uh, you might know him. I'll th- he, he's very low-key. He wouldn't want his name on the podcast. <laughs> One of my favorite human beings in the world. Yeah. Uh, a former unit guy. He, pulled, he walks up there. He's like, Greg, beating the shit out of this guy is not worth it. Let's go. We don't need to eat today, sir. Good on you. And the team walked away. And it's just like, man, these fuck. Why would you talk to somebody like that? Yeah. Over trying to feed a team of Americans that are in Iraq trying to yeah, do an operation. In combat. What are Downrange. we talking about? Like, what a piece of shit. And that's, I mean, and that's half of the fucking military. That's half of it, for sure. You know? That's disgusting. <laughs> I know, bro. I was like, that shit fires me up. I hate, I've had a couple of those experiences and it makes me sick. Like, dude, we're all on the same stomach. team. Yeah. I had a, I had a lieutenant colonel once when I was clearing Fort Bragg, clearing the unit, going to 10th group. And, I was I hadn't been used to being in a uniform. I had long ass hair. I was in ACUs. I was a senior fucking E I was a newly promoted E eight at the time. And um walk in on the sidewalk and he bypasses me. I don't have the time to salute him. Didn't even see his rank. He goes, Hey. I turn around, I was like, Who the fuck are you talking to? Hey who? Yeah. And he turns around, I see his rank, he's lieutenant colonel. I was like, Look, sir, I don't I <laughs> I don't care who you are. You don't talk to me that yeah. way. Yeah. And he's like, 
well, where, what unit are you coming from? I was like, I'm coming from the unit down the road, and I'm going to 10th group. And he's like, well, you, you don't salute salute the officers when you see them? I was like, you're stopping me. We're having this interaction right now because you want me to salute you as you bypass me, and I, I you bladed me. I didn't even see you, and we're having this interaction right now? You're wasting our time yeah. because Fuck, this is what's man. going on, and I have another E8 with me. And he and he's like, he's like, he literally said, because I heard this in a movie somewhere. He's like, uh, respect the rank, Master Sergeant. Respect the rank. Salute the rank. And I was like, I thought it was salute the man. Like, respect the man. And I was like, I'm not saluting you. And I walked away, and, and the DA that I was with saluted him. And I just walked away. I said, I'm, I'm fucking done with this. And I just walked away. And he's like, talk to, your, talk to your peer there. He needs to, some 670-1. And I was like, get the fuck out of my face. I just walked away. Bro, what is Ugh. with these people? That want to take every little opportunity to try and like posture and and and, and show who's in charge. Like, dude, um, when I was deployed to Afghanistan, they took my squad. We were we were QRF at a Bagram. Mm -hmm. I think I told you the story about going down and testing the density of the dirt mm. for the airfield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So while we were down at Kandahar doing that op, dude. My PL didn't care if we wore baseball caps and didn't shave every day and shit. We're deployed, mm. right? And the Sergeant Major walks by, and we had, like, civilian coats on and baseball caps. And he's like, who are you with? Like, all mad, right? Mm. And he was an 82nd Sergeant Major. Well, why, why do you care who I'm with? I'm not doing anything. Policing up the war zone. Right? What the yeah. fashion police? Goes, who are you with? And I said, I'm with 2nd Battalion, Sergeant Major. I know you're Sergeant Major. Him and I like started name dropping, like, and he goes, I doubt that he would be very happy to know that his Rangers are out of uniform right now. And I'm just like, bro, I'm in Afghanistan. And I got and we're going out on an op tonight. And I got a guy that's mad that I have a fucking baseball cap on instead of a PC. And that's the kind of shit that makes you want to get out, dude. dude it's it's part of the reason I got out. Man. You know, I'm just like, done what with the it. what the fuck is that? Yeah. It, in that guy's brain, I mean, it. Once you're downrange, your only effort should be about fucking becoming the best warfighter that you can be, killing and bad being guys, mission yeah. focused. Yeah, right. So, like, what's his thought process? Hey, we got a group of guys here. I don't know what unit they're with. I don't like their headgear. Like, where does he think that this goes? It's so crazy, man. And so, like. That's, sad. that's how that he's like, I don't want to see this down here on the airfield and I'll, I'll be touching base with the second battalion chain of command. And I, so when I went back up there, I told my PL what happened just because in case something came down, he's like, I don't fucking care. You know, yeah, it's fuck those guys. Yeah. And we never heard another thing, but just the fact that he thought that would be a good idea. It's fucking bizarre, bro. Dude, I, I, uh, I've experienced that on and off my entire military career, even to the point like getting my sideburns measured with a ruler in formation. <laughs> Like in class A's because the hammer's coming down. It's like I forget about a lot of those interactions. But if you realize like the transition from military to civilian life, those same people exist. Whether they were military before and now they're civilians, those same shitty people still exist. Yeah. Just begrudging cocksuckers who just have to use and virtue and signal their their disdain for things around them and they're the most toxic ass i can't be around that i can't even look at it Bro, it makes me it makes me fucking disgusted for a human human fucking life like at I just, the end ugh. of the day it's because 
they don't like who they see in the mirror. 100%. 100%. If they were content with the man that they were, they wouldn't yeah. be projecting all that bullshit on other people. So weird. You know, another example, shortly before I ETS'd, and I remember, like, it might not sound like a big deal, but it's so fucking stupid that it's like, why do I want to be part of this organization? And again, I look back on my time with 2nd Battalion fondly, and I'm proud of that. But again, there was a handful of stupid shit that would happen. It's like, why am I here? Mm. Dude, we were in BK, Barry Cow, Afghanistan, like, for pushing, like, six months. Yeah, because this was—it's the most remote fire base in Afghanistan. Yeah, bro. Yeah. And this was March of '03. Yeah, the rest of the regiment went to Iraq, mm. and they said we don't have a, a relief coming in, so we don't know how long we're going to be here, because we usually did 90-day rotations in and out. Oh wow! And they're like, there is no relief, so we're here until further notice. So we're out in BK, bro. There's no running water, there's no showers, and it's like. We weren't shaving or cutting our hair. And then one morning, the platoon sergeant's like, get everybody together, get everybody together. And we're like, dude, what the fuck is going on? Like, almost frantic, right? He goes, resupply bird's coming in, and I just got word, Sergeant Major's on it. Haircuts now. And I was like, we don't even have running water. What do you mean haircuts now? Haircuts in shape now. Sergeant Major's going to be here on, on today's resupply bird. I'm not having him come into the... The, the fire basement or the fucking safe house and, and see everybody like this. like And I was like, oh, so you don't have the balls to be like, hey, Sergeant Major, we right. don't have running yeah. water. That's why my guys haven't shaved. Yeah. like And why what's the big deal about shaving? What do they say? Because your pro mask won't seal. Okay, well, we haven't been gassed yet. Yeah. So I yeah. think we'll be okay. Oh, my God, dude. And I remember just thinking like, man, that's incompetence. It is. It, you know? Yeah. You might be tough on an objective. You might have courage to go through a door but you're afraid of telling another man that I told my troops not to shave. Yeah. It's fucking nuts, man. Bananas. <laughs> in that same fire base, like in Naray, which is like right down the road yeah, from I remember B- BK, I, had, I was doing the fire base uh, brief to a general. It came down. He wanted to see, like, hey, what's going on in the base? And I was good at briefing, and I'm like, hey, over here is operate. This is, you know, what is it, uh, SO or OP Mustang, you know, and this is OP whatever. And my sleeve was rolled like this, but it's still ACU pattern. Because, you know, if it's ACU like yeah, this, yeah, yeah. it's still ACU, ACU like that, right? Going, dude. And I just took a shit in the shitter. So I had rolled up my sleeve to wipe my ass. And I was briefing him. And then every the general was like, man, that's a good brief. Like, like Sergeant Glover here is squared away. All this stuff. Gave me a coin. All the stuff goes away. And then the fucking company commander... Um, or I'm sorry, the battalion commander, our battalion commander, talks to my team sergeant and my team leader and tells me how fucked up I am because I have my shit cuffed and to reprimand me. So they fly away in a helicopter. He's like, Glover, we got to talk. I'm like, why? Like, what's wrong? Like, you seem upset. Well, man, we just got our ass reamed because you have your, and I'm like, my cuff cuffed up my uniform in a fucking fire base in the middle of Afghanistan? And we're fighting men to the death. What are you talking about? I don't even have rank, tabs. Yeah. Nothing's on my uniform. Yeah, sterile uniforms yeah, on Yeah, I'm, I'm like wearing tennis shoes. And I'm like, you have a problem with that? He's like, look, man, it's the general. And he didn't say anything, but the battalion commander said something. And I'm like, okay, what do you want me to fucking do? Like, And, and, and here's the truth. Oh, my God. The battalion commander didn't care that you're He didn't give, yeah. He cared that... I don't want the general to think that I'm not squared away and it's his own insecurities. Dude, like, if, if the general said to you, hey, what's up with your troops thing? 
Oh, he probably took a shit. He's in the middle of Afghanistan. Like, what do you expect, sir? Like, yeah. However, he didn't. He actually said, "Hey, Sergeant Glover, you're squared away. Here's a coin." Yeah. You and then know? my team start, and then my leadership's like, "Hey, man, you suck," because you know, you just you're you're a cowboy. You have your shit like flexed up. What are you trying to do here? Like, what the fuck is going on? And this is early GWAT, and I'm like, I have no idea where the fuck I am right now. Um, and the unit they made everybody shave. Call sign. I mean, some of that was like dudes were getting out of control. But like, but <laughs> yeah. like they had like fucking ZZ top fucking like, mullets. Fu- and they look like fucking Tom Hanks. When yeah, he, when he went and ran. For they look like years. Casey with his fucking mullet. <laughs> um, anyways, we digress. The Dev Group guys are like that too. Dude, we had a we oh had my a God. their shit a, was like this. Yeah, we had a Dev Group team out in BK with us. Yeah, and they were just like fucking cavemen, dude. Oh, bro. They were all cool as fuck though, man. Oh, rad. All yeah. of them rad. I remember that that and that was another. L- lesson in leadership that i'll never forget um the septic system in bk i don't mm-hmm. know if you're aware of this we dug a fucking hole half the size of this room mm. for the shit to flow into oh interesting and uh you know it's like hey sergeants get your get your privates out there and dig that hole and so for the regiment it was like team leader and below digging the hole mm. and then all of these e8s and e9s from team six came out there and they're like we shit in here too. And they fucking dug all day with us. And I was like, man, that's, that's fucking squared away. While they are, well, your leadership's not? Our leadership was in their hooches. Wow. The dev group guys dug the fucking, wow. the giant fucking septic with us. I, you know, I raided that. I did a raid on that compound. After it got retaken, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because we were there in 03. Yeah. And then we heard once we left that it got, like, mm-hmm. retaken. Yeah, occupied by bad guys. That's fucking nuts. I did man. an exclusive breach on the fucking front door of that <laughs> compound. Um, that was, it was beautiful there, though. Like, the Bro, river, the Konar River. I tell people all the time, if if, if Afghanistan ever becomes stable, I would go back. I want to take my family to Same. PK. Because it's fucking amazing, dude. Same. It was and the, the yeah. people. They're it, like, amazing. I got, you know, culturally, Iraq and Afghanistan are night and day. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I didn't understand that. Like, I thought, like, oh, the, the Afghanistan and Iraq is just a bunch of bad guys, right? And then when I lived in BK, man, the locals would, like, go out of their way to take care of us. Yeah. And feed us. Yep. And, like, when we'd be on patrol, the locals would, like, get in arguments. I remember our interpreter, there was these two locals arguing with each other, like, aggressively. And I'm like, what, what is their problem? And he said, they're arguing about who gets to cook you guys dinner tonight. Wow, dude. And I was like, wow. And then we heard lots of stories. I'm sure you've heard them too. Like when the Taliban came through there, man, they would just fucking like kill all their kids and like wreak just havoc. vile shit. Yeah. So they were actually very grateful for an mm-hmm. American presence. Yeah. And I thought that's like, I was like, oh, so this is what it's like when we're deployed. The the local populace love us. And then you go to Ramadi. And then I like, went to Ramadi and it was like. They hate us. Oh, every single person hates us. Oh, you God, know? man. All right, we got to end this podcast. Cool. It's supposed to be an hour, but I'm imagining I'm going to go with hour and 23 minutes. What do you I, think? Uh, bro, it might be even an hour and 45. Cause you pod, think so? Podcasts go. I'll look down often, and I'm at three hours, and I'm like, where the fuck did the time go? Okay, I'm calling hour 33. Um, Let's do one more minute then and just give a little fucking uh, a little glimpse into Guns and Geese. Oh, yeah. Because that's, that. that's the whole reason we're here, right? Yeah. That we're partnering to bring 
See, courses that are jujitsu and firearm based pistol fundamentals or carbine. Like we can, yeah. we can make anything tactical, I think. And spend a day or a weekend doing both jujitsu and firearms training. Yeah. And me and Lappin have been doing this for a little bit. And you said that you think it's a, a formula that'll generate a lot of uh, interest and, and provide people with capability. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, it's been really cool to bring jujitsu to the tactical side of things because man you can train shooting all the time but at the end of the day what i find with jiu-jitsu is it's something you can do day in and day out you don't need to schedule range time it doesn't cost very much money and it keeps you sharp in a way that nothing else does Mm. because you're putting yourself through a lot of adversity on a daily basis Mm. and you form bonds with people unlike anywhere else you will develop fitness you will develop confidence it's all the things to really uplift people that are looking for that. Mm-hmm. And I see it with women. I see it with children more than anyone. But just like a lot of the guys at my academy that, you know, they work at Boeing, they work at Amazon, they're nine to five. Jiu-Jitsu is where they fucking reset and they come alive. And it's a tool to really change the trajectory of our future when implemented correctly. You see the value in it mm-hmm. and you're like, bro, let's do this. Mm-hmm. And we're going to make it happen with Fieldcraft Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Philcraft Jiu-Jitsu and also like Philcraft, you know, intertwined with your thing in P&W and same thing with Lappin and then integrating Jiu-Jitsu. Like we're making up for each other's deficiency. Yeah, for right? sure. Like we're just filling in the gaps. And I think when it comes to Philcraft Survival, our biggest deficiency is we don't have a Jiu-Jitsu program and you and Lappin – are building that program out for us and you know you're putting your black belts and all your uh, experience behind that um which is awesome man it's amazing it's a humbling honor to have the opportunity to kind of like have somebody who's so validated in the space say hey man we're, we're going to put our reputations on the line here um and that's going to create one of the best programs i think in the country like and, i think so too man. yeah it's going to be insane i think it's gonna be amazing so i just want to thank you man for for allowing us to be part of this. Yeah. Cause like you've built something incredible mm. and uh, it's no surprise. Everybody knows who you are and everybody knows like your courses are run to the highest standards and mm. you have good guys working for you. And to be able to be part of something like this, it's fucking rad, bro. Same so. man. I feel the same way. I'm like, I mean, you, I, my face was bruised this morning. It's bruised now, <laughs> but it feels good. Yeah. I'm like, Oh, those are good bruises. <laughs> like it's funny. Cause when he put me in that Ezekiel, when Lappin did. To squeeze your ear a little bit? He he fractured a little cartilage. And I'm like, oh, I don't want Anderson ears. Yeah, too bad. Bro. Oh, he They're made coming. it happen. <laughs> he, he already popped. You can see it's already popped right there. Like, he fractured the, the cartilage. I'm like, already? <laughs> Minute one. Minute one when is. you get Ezekiel by Lappin, he freaking <laughs> smashes your face. I always say, if you get gnarly cauliflower ears at yeah. White Belt, because I've seen it happen before, yeah. you're stuck training. Oh yeah, because now you look like you know what you're doing, <laughs> and you you got to make sure that you this know what you're doing. This white belt's a bad motherfucker. <laughs> I appreciate you, Greg. Likewise, brother. Yeah, thanks, man. Hey, everybody, the links down for all Gre- Greg stuffs down below. Um, you guys can check him out. Go to uh, his social, um, his website, and you'll find all the things, including uh, an outsource for guns and geese. And look forward to more things in the future. Till next time, peace out. Get ready for a battle, cause you know
Grab a can of Black Rifle Coffees ready to drink for the perfect balance of quality and convenience. If you want a Spartan-level caffeine kick, try Ready to Drink 300. Available in salted caramel, vanilla bomb, and more. Made with an electrifying blend of MCT oil and amino acids, Ready to Drink 300 packs a caffeine punch that will supercharge your day. Ready to Drink is perfect if you need your coffee quick, and when you shop with Black Rifle Coffee, you will help give back to veterans and first responders who serve our nation. You can stock up on cans at BlackRifleCoffee.com or grab an ice-cold can at a grocery or convenience store near you. That concludes today's training. Any questions? Woo! Drum titties, boy!